morning, everybody. How are we all? Oh, quite responsive this morning. Um, as Rob said, this is my first time at Christchurch, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here. Me and Beck have done a little bit of a swap today, so Beck is over in Birkdale, and I am here. Uh, Rob said, make sure you give me over three. I would like to say, make sure you give me over four. My confidence is very low, so I need at least a four uh, today. A four out of four, Rob. Four out of four, yeah. I presume you score everything out of four here, do, do you? Yeah, great. Um, as I mentioned before, I have two daughters. So I have Annabelle and I have Florence. And no one really ever prepares you for having a baby. Uh, the first time I held Annabelle, who is my eldest daughter, I was constantly afraid that I was going to break her. I had absolutely no idea how to change a nappy or how many times a day you actually have to change a nappy. And I also had no idea how hard it was to get a baby to go to sleep. Now, some people might have babies that sleep from day one. They normally tell you with like kind of a quite a smug look on their face. And they normally make out that they're some kind of magical parents and, and they're doing so well. Well, Annabelle did not like to go to sleep. So the first week of Annabelle coming home was lots and lots of sleepless nights and hearing a baby crying. Now one morning after a sleepless night, I was trying to get Annabelle back to sleep again. And it was taking a while. So I was trying everything. I was trying to rock her. I was trying to sing lullabies to her. I was putting on white noise. I was putting on the vacuum cleaner. I was even attempting to bribe a one-week-old child. Nothing was working, though. And eventually, after lots and lots of rocking and singing and vacuum cleaners, uh, she eventually falls asleep in my arms. Now, B is in bed after this sleepless night she's had, and I bring B, Annabelle in, and I put her down in the bed between B and I, and I get into bed, and I feel like I have won so many dad points at this point. I've managed to get a baby to sleep. I've managed to transfer a baby into a new bed. The baby has not woke up. I am smashing parenthood at this point. And I decide to capture the moment... <laughs> the moment that I have achieved something as a parent. So I get out my phone and I decide that I'm going to take a selfie. And I'm sure all of you know what a selfie is, but a selfie, if you don't know, it's the front-facing camera and it's with everyone doing this now in modern times. So I decide that I'm going to take a selfie to capture this moment. And it's at this point that it all goes horribly wrong. Now, taking a selfie is quite difficult. You have to stretch out your arm as far as possible. You then have to press a button while you're doing this. And you also have to keep hold of your phone. Now, I managed to stretch out my arm as far as possible. Got everyone in the picture. I managed to press the button, but holding onto the phone, well, that was a different story. So the phone, it slips from my fingers. And at this point, time moves very, very, very slowly. And the phone twists over on itself as it plummets towards its intended target. My one-week-old baby's face. The phone hits her on the cheek. There is a split second of silence. And then the sound of what only can be described as a possessed police car comes out of this little baby's mouth. 
B wakes up, she is not happy, Annabelle is also not happy, and I've moved from hero to zero very, very, very quickly. The passage we're looking at today tells the story of how Peter went from hero to zero very, very quickly. It begins from that time on. And it points back to the previous passage of what's just gone before, where Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is his hero moment. And Jesus tells him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Peter, at this point, has nailed it. And he probably feels on top of the world. And then in this passage, he's brought down to earth with a bang. Jesus tells the disciples he's going to suffer and die. And Peter, he's not having any of it. How can the Messiah, the saviour of Israel, God's own son, suffer and die? No, 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 Jesus. That's not happening. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And at this point, Peter goes from hero to zero as Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who has got it all right, suddenly gets it all wrong. He tries to stop Jesus walking the path he must walk. And Peter tries to stand in front of Jesus. He tries to lead Jesus in another direction. And Jesus tells him to get behind me and follow me. Today we're thinking about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And I want to use this passage to draw out a few thoughts. Now, as we know, Peter was one of Jesus' first disciples, and he was a fisherman. But he met Jesus, and Jesus invited Peter to follow him. The beginning of becoming a disciple is not an act of our own, but an act of God. Jesus invites us to follow him. Jesus is the first mover. Jesus initiates our journey with him. As far as we are aware, Peter wasn't anything special. He was just an ordinary guy doing an ordinary job in an ordinary village. But Jesus chose Peter. He didn't earn it. He wouldn't be at the top of other rabbis, I must have him be a disciple list. But Jesus invites Peter to follow him. And in the same way, Jesus chooses us. Jesus chooses you. You didn't earn it. It's not because you're especially intelligent or or gifted or you can take selfies without the phone dropping out of your hand and dropping onto your one-week-old child's face. Jesus wasn't forced to invite us. Jesus chose us because he believes in us. Now, what I'm saying, I suspect you have all heard before. I suspect maybe you're wanting me to get onto something a little bit deeper. For example, maybe 10 ways to stop your breath smelling when you fast. But the beginning of being a disciple is to understand that we don't earn the right to follow him because of our own holiness or our own ability, but because Jesus chooses us, because Jesus believes in us. 
And I think this will shape our whole walk with Jesus. Instead of thinking that discipleship is somehow proving to Jesus that we are good enough or holy enough or devoted enough, discipleship is realising that Jesus calls us because he wants us. Instead of thinking that Jesus has this kind of heavenly scorecard he is marking us against, we realise that Jesus is actually on our side. The God who created heaven and earth chooses us. The God who holds all power chooses us. The God who knows everything about us still says to us, follow me. Where Peter goes from hero to zero in this passage is that he forgets that when Jesus calls us, it is a call to follow him. Now, Peter doesn't like what Jesus is saying. Peter doesn't like where Jesus is going. And so Peter steps out from behind Jesus and stands in his way. Instead of following Jesus, Peter tries to lead Jesus. And Jesus responds with the words, get behind me. The place of a disciple is to follow and not to lead. That's true for Peter, and it's also true for us today. So I wonder if we are following Jesus. And it's all well and good us saying that, but do our lives reflect us following Jesus? One of the earliest memories I have is walking around Tesco's with my mum. Very exciting memory, I know. And as I was walking around, I was holding onto my mum's trolley, like all good toddlers do, so we don't get lost. But, but somehow, during our, our excursion to Tesco's, I somehow must have let go, and I was holding onto a trolley, and when I looked up, it wasn't my mum I saw, but it was a stranger, and my mum was totally nowhere in sight. Modern life is busy, and there is a lot going on. There's lots of demands on our time and on our energy. And in this busyness, it's oh so easy to drift away from walking behind Jesus. To look at what is in front of our eyes, and before we know it, we find ourselves a little bit lost. To feel that the, the strains and stresses of daily life take up all our energy. And so following Jesus just becomes a bit of an afterthought. I wonder if any of that resonates with you. The good news of Jesus is that even when we wander off, he will come to find us. But the call of Jesus is to follow him. It's to, it's to stay close to him, to be led by him, to see him, to hear him. The biggest danger to Christians in this modern world is not that we make a decision to stop following Jesus, but we do it without even realising. The biggest danger is that everyday busyness creates distance, and distance creates apathy, and apathy leads us into the wilderness. The danger is the life-changing call to follow me gets lost amongst the constant noise of this world. Following Jesus is not about just one single decision. It's about a lifetime of walking behind him. In order to follow someone, you have to look at them. 
Trying to follow anyone blindfolded is very difficult, as I'm sure some of you may have done in cheesy team-building exercises or icebreakers at some point in your life. But it's the same with Jesus. And so part of our walk with Jesus is to look at him regularly. I wonder if, for some of us, we've not looked at Jesus for a while, or at least not regularly. I wonder what you do regularly in your life that helps you look at Jesus and not just what's going on in front of you. And for all of us, that might look a little bit different. But where in your life do you feel most connected to God? Where do you feel like you're being with Jesus? And how can you do this more regularly? Jesus gives us this amazing invitation to follow him. But following him involves looking and listening to him. And what of the path Jesus calls us to walk? Jesus says, and we heard in the passage, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus calls us to follow him along the path he walked himself. It is a path of surrender, a deeply costly path. For Jesus and many of his disciples, it's a path that led to death. When Jesus talked to his disciples about, about losing their life, he was speaking literally. Following Jesus involves death, sometimes literal death. It always has and it always will. It involves complete surrender of everything we cling to. It involves giving God everything, the complete control of our lives, even to the point of physical death. When Jesus chooses us to follow him, this is the life he is inviting us to. Now, this message has never been particularly popular. And I imagine after the, the last two years we've all had, it's even less popular. We all probably feel like we've had to make sacrifices over these past two years. And someone talking about self-denial is probably not really what we want to hear at the moment. But you cannot talk about following Jesus without talking about the cost. Following Jesus is not the easy way. It's not a path to a comfortable life. It's not another self-help scheme to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Following Jesus means nothing less than taking our broken bodies to the cross and dying to ourselves. It is about giving our lives into the hands of God giving up control, giving up what we want, giving up the notion that we might be at the centre of the universe and saying to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Not my path, but yours. I wonder if there's anything in your own life that you maybe still cling on to. An area you've maybe not given over to God. The Christian life is all about death and resurrection, dying to ourselves and living for God. Is there something in your life 
that has not yet died and been reborn. Now, what this means for all of us in practice will look different. But let me talk about one example. Now, because I'm the guest speaker, I can get away with talking about topics that maybe are avoided in church, or at least I hope I can. You'll give me a four if I can't. So let's talk about money. Don't worry, this isn't a gift day. And don't worry, there's not going to be a collection at the end for the guest preacher. Billy Graham once said, the last thing to be converted is someone's wallet. For many people, the last area we give God control over is our wallet. And many of us will never let God anywhere near it. Some of us will give our 10% as some kind of God tax and call it a day. But to give God complete control over our bank accounts, well, we wouldn't dream of that. We want to take the lead in terms of what we do with our money. And if we're being honest, many of us wouldn't trust God with it. We would worry about what would happen if we said to God, not my money, but yours. Now, there are many other practical examples we could talk about. But has our wallet or our purse been converted? When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to give up everything. He calls us to give over control of everything. He calls us into a new life. Jesus doesn't just take everything away, though. He calls us into this new path. He calls us to become the person he believes in. He invites us to walk with him. On the cross, Jesus lost his life to save ours. And as Jesus says to us, follow me, Jesus calls us to lose our lives in order to gain our life. A life where God is in control, where God walks beside us, where God will not leave us, where God will transform us, where God will help us, and where God will bring us into his eternal home. To think we can have all the benefits without the cost is to misunderstand what Jesus said when he said, follow me. Jesus calls us because he believes in us. He beckons us to walk behind him. And the walk he leads us on is costly. Yet this is the path to life, happiness, fulfillment, meaning, and God. The last thing I want to talk about is that when Jesus called his disciples, they joined a bunch of other disciples. This journey was not a solo journey. We walk behind Jesus with others. So what is our collective role? How do we help others walk behind Jesus? How do we make disciples? And firstly, I think... There is a responsibility for the church to live it. If we say that being a disciple involves being called, walking behind Jesus, and is costly, is that being demonstrated in this church? Does this church know that it's been called to follow Jesus and that Jesus believes in this church? Does this church walk behind Jesus? not along its own path, not getting bogged down in everyday busyness, not trying to lead Jesus along another path, 
Do you walk behind Jesus? And do you know as a church the cost of following Jesus? Is it costly for you as a church or is it comfortable? People follow where you walk, not where you say you are going to walk. Where is Christchurch walking? And secondly, the call of Jesus is hard. Dying to yourself is incredibly difficult and often painful. Following Jesus is costly. People are not berated or bullied into this costly path. They hear a call from Jesus and choose to follow him. I'm convinced that our role as a church is to support and encourage others into this new life. We are there to pick people up when they fall, help people back on track when they get lost, encourage people who have maybe lost hope or feel disillusioned. If the path of Jesus is difficult, then let us be a community of people that love each other and support each other along the way. Let us be a group of disciples that share honestly about our struggles and our joys. Let us invite others into our lives and join with others in theirs. Let us pray for each other. Being a disciple is not a solo journey. We journey with others, even if that too is costly. May Christ Church know that Jesus has invited you to follow him. And may you walk that road together wherever Jesus leads you.